Hello to everyone in the entire world. I am back. It's Listen and Learn. Uh, my name is Matt Feuerstein, and uh, I'm here because uh, there was something going on on the internet that inspired me to get back on the air, a, uh, a topic that involved lists and things that I am interested in in the world of wrestling. So I am here to now discuss the top 10 Ring of Honor wrestlers of all time. I'm doing this um, in the spirit of a of a list uh, project that's being done by Voices of Wrestling and uh, Place to Be Nation, um, where people are listing their top 50 ROH stars of all time. Um, not quite that ambitious on the show here, but I am a longtime Ring of Honor fan, and I feel like this is something that I, uh, I could do. And to join me, I've, uh, I've enlisted another longtime Ring of Honor fan who I've enjoyed talking about Ring of Honor with for many, many years, and I feel like he's... Uh, uh, eminently qualified to do this topic and that's Hobbs. So welcome back to the show Hobbs. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh yeah, Ring of Honor was actually I think a big part of what kept me a wrestling fan probably I would say in the early to mid 2000s. And so in a way Ring of Honor is to blame for a lot of things I think cuz I probably could have done something with my life. So it's good to finally celebrate a company like this. Yeah, it's good to uh, celebrate something that uh, allowed us to waste tons of money and time over the years instead of being productive citizens of our respective countries. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I'm in the same boat as you. Um, ROH, I, I, for a long time, let's say like 05 to 07, I, it was the primary wrestling that I watched. I went to every show that I could possibly get to, even if it meant going by myself, because I, it was such a, uh, a big part of my, uh, of my life and just of my interest. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very nostalgic for me to, to kind of do a whole show looking back on that. And of course, this isn't only going to be from that era. This is going to span the entirety of the history of ROH. Um, now, I was looking at this uh, this project that the uh, Voices of Wrestling uh, and Place to Be are are putting on, and looking kind of at their criteria, and the criteria seems relatively loose in the sense of it doesn't necessarily specify if it's in ring only or if it's based on you know an entire character work or longevity or whatever. It seems like that's more in the um, the eye of the beholder. The only thing that they really specified was that it has to be based on what this particular wrestler did in ROH and ROH alone. So um, what was sort of the criteria that you used to create your top 10? My criteria was fairly vague. I think it'll come up a few times during my list where I valued, I think, I think I value quality more than quantity, but at the same time, only to a certain level, like someone having a great, if there was such a thing, a six month run, I don't think would be equivalent to a decade of really solid work, but there will be guys I think where this will come up where I had to kind of make a choice between, do I want like the highest of highs or just a metric ton of like great, but maybe not absolutely insane moments. And I think that's mostly what, what my criteria kind of was. And I did include kind of character work and interviews and things like that. Although in a way, Ring of Honor was is such a wrestling focused promotion, especially during the prime years, that I found that it wasn't really creating huge conflicts to have to consider that because it wasn't like oh man, there's like 
20 guys in Ring of Honor that are great promos but are horrible wrestlers and 20 guys who are great. Re- I mean, they always kind of kept an eye towards having to carry your end in the, in the ring. So, Yeah, definitely. Um, for me, I, I valued longevity pretty heavily, except there were certain guys whose, um, whose presence was so overwhelming that I couldn't ignore them, despite maybe a slight lack of longevity. Like you said, someone like a, a James Gibson, uh, I didn't have on my list because you know he had an amazing six-month run, but it was only six months, and that was it. And you know, I, if I was doing the entire top fifty, you know, I don't know if he would sneak in there. Maybe, maybe not. But I couldn't consider him for like a top ten. But there were guys that you know they were there for a short amount of time, relatively speaking, considering the fifteen-year history of the company. But they, um, you know, they, they basically they were just such overwhelming figures, and so ring work was definitely number one. But the character work and just the importance uh, were both things that I definitely considered uh, when making my list. Um, the other thing I was thinking about when I was doing this um, before we have to get started on the list is how crazy is it that ROH has been around so much longer than WCW and its Turner incarnation and ECW ever were. It's actually true for TNA also, but it's just it's just crazy to think like the paradigm has shifted so much, you know, that we think of you know WCW and ECW as these long time things, but they were around for actually a very short period of time, at least in the forms that we knew them in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about how crazy it is the way we consume wrestling has changed in the time in the fifteen years of Ring of Honor. I remember like in the early days of Ring of Honor, even talking to you. Like a Ring of Honor show would almost be two or three separate events where the night of the show, you would be, if you weren't at the show, you'd be reading the message boards just desperately hoping you could find someone that came back with spoilers that same night and didn't go to sleep first. Or occasionally someone would text from the show and then someone would relay, they would text to someone posting on the Ring of Honor message board and then relay that to the message board people before Twitter. And so then you'd have that conversation. Then you'd have the conversation over like the next week where you would talk to anyone you knew that was at the show and you'd get all excited. And then there'd be a third conversation like a month or two later where you would get the DVDs and you'd have conversations with everybody that actually got the DVD at that time and wasn't there live. And really the only promotion in the world that's like that now is PWG. And nowadays, everything is so much more immediate. But back then with Ring of Honor, that was really how you had to consume basically most indie wrestling. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, it's different for everybody, but just me personally where I am right now, like the concept of buying all of these individual DVD events, it's just it's just, it's just mind-boggling to me. Like I, I, there was, there's no way I could do it right now. You know, just with, I don't know, different just expenses as an adult versus as like a you know, like a early, someone in my early 20s who was still living with my parents, I don't know. But I just like now, you know, you can get these streaming services where you pay a flat fee, or, you know, and there's certain clips online. And obviously ROH even has, you know, their free show. But the idea that I was spending like thousands of dollars on this once upon a time, and it's very hard for me to, you know, it, I, I'm not saying I regret it because I really loved it. And it was a, you know, it was a great time to be a fan. But... It's just it's just insane to me. You're right how things change and how priorities and media changes and yeah, like even PWG, like you said, you don't have to wait for someone to get home to write a report because you know tons of people are live tweeting it the entire time. So it's it's very different. 
and and they also have those video previews up of the entire show within a week, which is another thing that gets people excited. Which you know it would be amazing. Imagine if ROH had that, where they had like these like video highlight reels, uh, you know, a few days after every show promoting the uh, the event. But yeah, it's just you're right. Like it just it spanned quite the time in the history of like mass media and streaming video and wrestling and all these things. And um, I almost think that because of like maybe the the way that we consumed it back in the glory days it's almost puts the current or recent era at a disadvantage because it seems like so much less of like a super card oriented thing and just like kind of mm. a, a basic like week to week promotion so it's you know you don't get that that hype the way you know the shows that aren't on pay-per-view for ROH i mean people just don't really talk about them so much anymore you know they still put out these events but it's not like you know, you got you have your top tier events, and then you have your events that no one cares about. There was a time mm-hmm. when ROH every show was basically a pay per view. Yeah, I, I uh, was watching that uh, the Gabe Sapolsky book of ROH secrets. I think I think that was the shoot interview where he mentioned this, where he talked about how people always said to him, you know, why didn't you do like more angle intensive things? Why didn't you do more promos? Why did you have to book like big matches on almost every show? And you know, he made it clear. It was a DVD-oriented product where every show had to have at least, like, one selling point match. You know, there could be no build-up shows. Every show had to have something that would justify someone paying $20, you know. Even built to other shows, it had to have something alone on that show where you would send, you know, pay money and then wait for weeks sometimes, depending on where you lived, for it to come to your mailbox. Yeah, and it was... um I mean, by the by the, t- the end of Gabe's run, it was pretty unsustainable because they had too many shows for every show to mean that much. So I think that's probably what contributed to his burnout. In the first two or three years, when you had, you know, two one to two to three shows a month max, it was that was kind of doable. Um, yeah, it was a stretch, but it was doable. Um, but yeah, it's just you know being able to look back at ROH always. Um, is always uh, something that makes me feel good because it was such a good time and such an interesting uh, time for wrestling. And I think uh, wrestling has evolved in a way that I think the ROH stuff from like the quote golden era still holds up really well. So I can mm-hmm. watch it and not feel like it's dated, you know, because a lot of those guys just brought that style to WWE. Um, so it's not like you watch the stuff now and it feels like in a, it's in a whole different evolution of wrestling. Um, so it, so it works well. Like I said, might not be fair to the current wrestlers. I do think that my um, my list is going to be very um, golden age heavy, so to speak. Um, but we'll see. Um, I'm ready to get started if you are. Yeah, let's go. All right. So uh, uh, I'll start with my number ten, and this is kind of a um, uh, kind of something I was talking about before, where I usually do um, prioritize some degree of longevity, but there are certain figures that are so towering in the company's history that I can't, I can't ignore them. And in my case, that, that's number 10 for me, which is low-key. Um, and he's higher on my list. Okay. So, so yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of debate on him. Um, low-key, you know, I could very easily have... You know, I, I, when I was first thinking of the list, I was considering him for my top five. Um, but... Uh, the longevity factor did play in there. Um, he was just so amazing at the beginning. He pretty much put ROH on the map. He was the first ROH legend. Um, he had this amazing run of matches. I could list them, but we'll do it later. So we'll just go on to your number 10 for now. Okay. My number 10 is definitely more 
kind of the opposite. It's the longevity thing, and that would be uh, Roderick Strong at and, number 10. And I have him higher. Okay. So actually, we'll just save that for – we'll go to year nine. We'll move up. Okay. So my number nine, um, I wouldn't be surprised if you had him higher too, which is uh, another guy who um, – his, he's probably uh, more known for things he did outside of ROH, but when I really looked at his ROH run, there was just too much great stuff, and he was just so elite in all of his different incarnations there, and that's AJ Styles. Uh, he's actually not on my list. Okay, so I will talk about him now then. And that is, so AJ Styles, um, I originally, like when I was thinking of the list, was like, hmm... He might not make it because he is, you know, when I think of AJ Styles, I think of TNA, I think of uh, New Japan, um, you know, Southern Indies, which I haven't watched too much of, even like places like PWG, uh, he's had good runs in, you know, other Indies, and now even WWE, I, uh, he's, he's had a really good run. But if you actually look at his body of work in ROH, um, starting from the very beginning, I think he arrived on the third show, he had an amazing match with Loki there. He had a great match with Brian Danielson that first year. Uh, incredible three-way with London and Low-Key. One of the great matches of the early era against London. Another great match against Danielson. Great matches against Joe. He came back and had some, um, you know, some very good matches. You know, not necessarily all-time classics, but ones that I remember against guys like Matt Seidel. And he was just, you know, kind of in and out for a while. And then when he came back finally after he finally left TNA for good and was part of the the Bullet Club, he had a really good run there. He was doing uh, trios matches with the Young Bucks that were really good. He was just great in every role, and he always was a star in ROH. He was, you know, even when he wasn't pushed or he was sort of in the background because of his TNA commitments, he always felt like a big deal. His matches always felt like a big deal, and he was always AJ Styles. He was always um, a great performer. He just in presence, even before he really created this fully rounded persona that he has now, in presence, he always had a different level, and his ring work was consistently really good. Yeah, I, uh, I have a little list of uh, honorable mentions that I'm sure we'll get to later, but I would say he's probably like number two. He was a, he was one of my very last cuts, and yeah, it's it's hard to argue with how good his work was. I feel. I see a lot of people online now are kind of trying to go back now, seeing of how as how good the last few years of AJ Styles was, and trying to kind of re-explore everything he's done, which I think is really interesting. I will say that AJ Styles was always really, really well liked, but maybe not quite. I don't think he quite had the quite the level of like steam he has now. Oh but, yeah, I mean. Yeah, people saw him not the way they see him now. People, yeah, like, people did not talk about him as an like all time elite wrestler the way they do now. I would say there he would he would be in the era he wrestled in Ring of Honor, like at least the first era before TNA started really growing. I would say he'd probably be on the top of the second tier of kind of indie names, where guys like Low Key during their heyday were at the very top, and AJ Styles was just this guy who was all over the place. And you always almost took him for granted. Like, yeah, AJ Styles is great. Like, that'll be a good match. But maybe he wasn't the thing that was actually, like, just making you excited out of your mind to go to the show. He was more of the second thing that would be like, oh, this will be good, too. AJ Styles is here. But, yeah, those early years with um, even the tag team with Amazing Red and 
it'd be interesting to see. I mean, Gabe made him the first pure champion where that title with the weird kind of convoluted rules. And even though AJ could work the mat, you don't really think of him as that kind of guy. And because with the whole Feinstein scandal, him being pulled from Ring of Honor by TNA, I think it would have been really interesting to see where his ROH career would have gone if he hadn't had to left right at that precise moment. Like, I don't know if that would have been good or bad to see kind of what he would have had to do what he would have, you know, to kind of make that title work, it would have been, I think, an interesting kind of a predicament for him to be in. Yeah, um, I, I think he would have risen to the occasion. But I, for me, I think, you know, the thing that really got him off the honorable mention list and onto my top ten was that last little run, like that longevity where he kind of came in. He was the, the, you know, and a lot of times he was the IWGP champion. He just had this superstar aura. And... And then looking back and realizing that he was great the whole time. I do have a funny little anecdote, though. Um, in uh, uh, Best in the World 2011, which was the show where Davy Richards won the ROH title from Eddie Edwards, um, I was during the main event of that match, um, people were chanting, Best in the World, Best in the World. And somebody yelled out, I don't see AJ Styles anywhere. And in 2011... I remember thinking that was really funny, like just like the, the idea that somebody was, you know, would mention AJ Styles as like best in the world because, you know, he was still in TNA. You know, I, I don't think I gave him the respect that maybe he deserved. And now if someone was, you know, to call AJ Styles the best in the world, they'd be like, OK, well, that's kind of actually a blase opinion. Like, you know, duh, everyone thinks yeah. that he's, some, he's one of the best in the world. So um, it's just funny how how quickly his reputation evolved once he uh, once he went to New Japan and now obviously uh, – has probably the the best performer all around in WWE in the past year as well. Um, so, uh, what's your number nine? My number nine is a guy with longevity, but also a guy I would say one of his big selling points is kind of significance, and that would be uh, Christopher Daniels. All right, and I did not have him in my top ten. So, uh, go ahead, you can uh, speak on this. Okay, olale. Um, Chris Daniels is a guy. It's weird because. I've never been the hugest Christopher Daniels fan, but when I was looking at this list, I always kind of lean with lists to making them very personal. But on lists like this, I also think if you're just looking at, for example, the parameters of this one where it's careers, I feel you. it's almost there's some guys you can't leave off unless you absolutely hate them. And I don't hate Christopher Daniels. And I think, you know, Ring of Honor some people like to say, oh, you know, like the very start of Ring of Honor, there was no angles, no faces and heels. And that's an exaggeration. But it was very, very, compared to even nowadays, you know, much straighter, much more meat and potatoes. And Christopher Daniels was the guy they chose, you know, from the very first show to kind of be the character, you know, I mean, there was guys like the Christopher Street connection, but like the character they would take seriously, you know, he was the first guy, you know, to break the code of honor, the first heel, the first guy to start a a stable. And, you know, even just the very first, the main event of the first show where it's, you know, low key Danielson and, and Daniels, and he's, you know, begging you know low-key and daniels danielson are kicking the crap out of them taking turns trying to top each other and daniels is begging them to stop like to me that's one of the, like the first character moments and kind of 
it kind of right there sums up what his role in the first year was. And then you add in the longevity where he was just, you know, he would keep coming in for runs and then leaving again. And he, but he just so much, he was, he's kind of dotted, you know, in ring of honor history, there's a lot of guys that have like one big chunk run and then they're kind of gone and maybe they come back for a short time and then they leave again. And then there's a few guys that were there for the whole run. And Daniels is more like, Big run, kind of leaves, sticks around, leaves, comes back again, where he he's kind of like big dollops of of Christopher Daniels are spread throughout Ring of Honor, and delicious. <laughs> oh, it's so smooth. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little feels a little empty calories, but oh, so smooth. <laughs> but um, believe it or not, that was not sexual. It's just a reference to his wrestling style. <laughs> <laughs> um. Got to stop before I get turned on. Um, the thing about Daniels, I was trying. I'm just trying to think of it. I also think I also love the moment where, like, during the CM Punk, like, Summer of Punk thing, that kind of moment. Since Punk was the guy to take Daniels out, that being the moment he came back, I thought was a moment I really enjoyed. And he is also, I think, to finish with him, I will just say. I think what really sneaks him onto this list for me is the last few months of it right now. I think the latter war stuff where he just had a crazy performance for a guy in his mid forties, what he was willing to do and those promos about how important things were. Like I honestly think you could put some of the stuff he's doing right now as a career, as a ring of honor career highlight for him. And you know, who knows? Like he might even get that gold watch world title reign. Like, He's at that position where, depending where Adam Cole goes, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets that almost that Jerry Lynn, we'll give it to you for a couple months kind of, because he is that kind of figure where I think people will feel like the career he has is kind of worth that. Yeah, um, you know, uh, he was a guy that, you know, obviously I strongly considered, you know, for that longevity alone, you know, the fact that he's had so many, you know, runs near the top. You know, I think just what did it for me, what, what, or what didn't do it for me, what made me keep him off my top ten is I just never was personally that into him, like, work-wise. Um, but, like, I, I respect him so much. I actually consider him one of the more underrated promo guys of the past 20 years. You know, even back in the early era, when, like you said, he was the, the one main event ROH wrestler who was the character... You can actually find some really good Christopher Daniels promos on some of those DVDs. Um, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen them, so I can't really name them specifically. But I remember, you know, a bunch of times where I was like, "Wow, you know, that's just like a really, really good promo," and he still does good promos. Mm-hmm. And he still, you know, he still has great matches. Um, you know, his style just didn't totally click for me. But you know, you could certainly, you know, go down a list of great matches. You know, going all the way back to the first ROH show. Um, so I, you know, fully respect that, uh, him, him being on the list and, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I think it just comes down to personal preference as to why I don't have him on mine. Yeah. I do think, I mean, I, I think I actually, we probably agree a lot kind of, we just value maybe the longevity with him a little differently, but I feel the same way about him where there's a lot of matches of his I liked. There's not a ton of Christopher Daniel matches. I feel like I've ever really loved, but I also think he's one of those guys. He's almost a workers wrestler where 
so there's some wrestlers where you hear other wrestlers talk about working with them and you can tell he probably just does things that makes life so much easier for them. It's almost like the wrestlers appreciate what he does more than the fans do just because you hear that with Randy Orton a lot too, where a lot of wrestlers will just go, man, Randy Orton is easily like the best wrestler in the world. And I think there's some wrestlers where they're probably just like a joy to work with where, you know, it's almost like a night off. And well, you know, for a fan that doesn't really mean a ton, you know, I have to admit, even that played a little bit on the, on these borderline calls, just the idea of knowing how many shoot interviews I've seen where, where wrestlers just like raved about how, how big a deal it was to work Daniels early in their career and how, you know, how easy he made things for them. Yeah, and actually I think that's a, a pretty good comparison that I wouldn't have thought of, the the Daniels-Orton comparison, just in terms of, you know, super smooth, you know, clearly super technically proficient and impressive, and just not, uh, just not the most exciting yeah. <laughs> or dynamic performers, you know, it's almost like they're so reliable that there's an element of um, patness to them, although I think that he's actually gotten better about that. Uh, in his later later in his career, I think he's he's changed it up enough that I, I find his matches a little bit more dynamic now when they're good than I did, let's say, ten years ago. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Yeah. Um, all right. So my number eight, um, and actually one of the reasons maybe that I, um, you know, I never totally uh, got into Daniels um, was because of a disappointing match he had once that I saw live with my number eight. Uh, and that was uh, CM Punk. Um, and uh, CM Punk and Christopher Daniels had an hour-long draw in Philadelphia in 2005 <laughs> during the summer of Punk. Oh, I was, yeah. I was really excited for that match after the big angle. And it ended up not being so great. Um, where? Uh, so I'm going to guess that you have CM Punk on your top ten? He, yes, he is higher for okay. me. Okay, so we'll come back to him. Uh, who is your number eight? Uh, and my number eight? I'm I'm actually honestly curious because I could see this going either way if he's on your list, but I think he'll probably be on it, and that's Homicide. Yes, and Homicide is higher on my list uh, than than number eight. So we'll go right to number seven. Um, for me, number seven is Kevin Steen. And he's not on my list. He was the last cut I made. So yeah. go. Yeah, and I, um, you know, I, uh, I went back and forth on this one. For Kevin Steen, because obviously, like, you know, having Kevin Steen higher than CM Punk is probably like a what the fuck to some people that are listening. But when I really broke it down, you know, Kevin Steen has a, had a lot of longevity in ROH. Uh, first showed up in 2005, but he was a regular starting at the beginning of 2007. And he lasted through uh, 2013, um, or, or 20, was it 2014 that he was there? Um, that's a, you know, it's a good six, seven year run. Um, where he was, you know, a very major highlight in 2007. Um, you know, as soon as he became a regular, he was one of the best guys on the roster with uh, in this tag team with El Generico. Um, was part of what I consider one of the greatest feuds in ROH history with El Generico. And, you know, certainly from, like, a promo standpoint, he carried that feud because, you know, El Generico didn't cut any promos. Um, he, uh, I, th- I think that he, uh, he helped carry ROH through what was probably... Uh, one of their lower points when he was champion, and maybe you can blame him for that. I personally don't. Um, I think he was just very good and exciting that whole time. Uh, you know, he was over to a degree that no one else was during that time period. Um, had lots of great brawls. Probably, you know, one of the two or three best brawlers in ROH history. 
Um, and I just think, you know, the longevity plus the dynamic character plus, you know, consistent great matches throughout that entire run. Um, you know, I'm not personally a huge Davy Richards fan, so I sort of see him as pulling ROH out of a little bit of the Davy Richards doldrums there uh, <laughs> for his title reign. So I give him a lot of props and a lot of credit, and I've just seen too much amazing Kevin Steen stuff over the years to not have him on my list, and so I have him at number seven. Yeah, I almost hate that you have Kevin Steen on the list because it makes it even more painful to listen to your arguments knowing that he was my last cut where it was him or Roderick Strong, and it was like, it was so tough because they have the two polar, well, not the polar opposite arguments, but to me, I don't think Roderick Strong's highs in ROH are ever close to Kevin Steen's, but then he has... I might debate that with you in a little bit, but yeah, we'll go on. Okay. Um, The thing about, I think what you nailed, what you hit right on the head on, is I think Kevin Steen's biggest kind of uh, plus sign in Ring of Honor is he, I think he carried that company in terms of keeping it relevant and exciting during a time when it was really, I think, bleeding fans, kind of in an era of, like, you know, post-Gabe, where people were still watching Ring of Honor and liking some of it. But the one thing that really was still exciting that people were, like, talking that were even more casual Ring of Honor fans was that angle. And, you know, I think it won a feud of the year in the Observer that year even. And, you know, Ring of Honor was not red hot during that period. And... So to kind of keep that going, that alone, I think, is big. I also think his career in general there kind of suffers because he kind of had to – His the best of his career is kind of in that weird middle period for Ring of Honor where they were kind of transitioning between what they became now and kind of the heyday of the Gabe era, where I think that's where the meat of a lot of his best stuff was – but there are just so many good tags with El Generico. I think he's one of, like you were saying, probably one of the most fully realized, like best characters the company ever had. And I remember Kevin Steen saying in an interview once something to the effect of he wasn't about having great matches, although he, you know, he wanted to have great matches, but he just wanted every night to give the fans something entertaining, something memorable. And he didn't care if that was through the match or an angle, or just a moment of interaction. And I think there aren't a lot of guys in Ring of Honor history that were like that, where they weren't just, I'm going to I'm gonna have a great match, and that's all I need to do in this company. A guy who was just kind of like, I'm going to make moments, you know, and how I make the moments could vary from show to show. And he's probably one of the top guys where I almost wish the Kevin Steen of, of that El Generico feud period was around during like the peak gay booking days of like 2003 2004 i would have loved to see like how high in the mix he would have gotten and kind of what kind of feuds he could have gotten into there Although i would I will, have lo- i will say you know he was really good during that time and at least part of that time and gabe didn't book him but uh i guess alas he, he eventually had his run yeah that's the other interesting thing about him is I mean, he's one of the most famous examples of, I think, one of Gabe's good qualities, which is kind of realizing when he's kind of made a mistake in judgment, because he first did book Generico and Steen, 
and kind of put them not in great positions. I think like Steen was wrestling Vordell Walker or something. And he, he basically, I mean, Steen tells the story where Gabe basically told him, I'm not going to be booking you guys like anytime soon. And to, to Gabe's credit, like later on, he kind of realized I need to give these guys a second chance and booked them against the Briscoes and apparently just told them like, go nuts, like just do everything, steal the show. And, when it, you know when he actually did give them a chance like surprise surprise i think what's how steam tells it is like right when they came back through the curtain gabe was like i'm booking you on this show i'm booking you on this show like he was instantly just he finally bought into them yeah i mean i was there um same show actually as the disappointing punk versus daniel's hour draw they opened the show steam versus generico in july 2005 and they had a match that wasn't good and they did not put it on the DVD. And I'm not sure if they booked Steen or Generico again after that. Maybe like one more time after that until like, at least with Steen, I don't think they brought him back until 07. I think Generico had a couple more shots in before that. But yeah, but then, you know, he came back and I think he approved everybody wrong. And, you know, during that run where he was the champion, or at least especially right before that, you know, after he um, he lost that match to Generico and he was sort of... Um, in the you know I guess that was a loser leaves town match, and you know the, and he would make his appearances you know and like break through security and he sort of had the Stone Cold Steve Austin vibe for a while, and you know mm-hmm. not too many guys were able to pull that off in ROH because of the smarkiness of the crowd I guess. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so um, who would uh, who would your number seven be? Uh, my number seven's probably another guy I'm curious to see. I think this might be the last guy where I'm curious. I'd be curious if he's on your list or not, which would be Austin Aries. Oh, he is certainly higher on my list. Okay, so we'll move on to your n- number six. And my number six is Homicide. So uh, he was your number eight. So I think we can discuss him now. Yes. So um, to me, uh, the best brawler in ROH history, or at least the most um, iconic brawler in ROH history. Um, he was the guy that brought the element of danger to ROH when I first started watching. Uh, you know, when he when he turned heel on Joe, I thought he was a truly like dangerous seeming character. Um, he seemed you know authentic. He seemed uh, like a like a big deal. His entrance was one of the best in ROH history. He had so many great moments uh, during that early run, whether it was his heel turn or his face turn um, when he was you know coming out against the CZW crowd. Um, he wasn't always the smoothest wrestler of all time. He had his ups and downs, I would say, in the ring. Some disappointments, some really surprisingly good matches. But he was versatile. Um, he was dynamic. Uh, I wouldn't say he was a good promo, but he was certainly an entertaining promo. Um, I think his whole package with uh, with Julius Smokes, I think Julius Smokes is one of the more underrated, um, I guess, managers in wrestling. Uh, could be a little bit annoying, but he was... Uh, just, I don't know, just a very memorable, cool figure. I think they were a really good act. Um, I think uh, his association with Loki made Loki much more interesting for a time. Uh, his feud with Joe was, I would say, epic. His run to the title had its ups and downs, certainly, but uh, overall, I think, was really good. I was there when he won the title um, from Danielson, and it was, uh, you know, maybe the biggest pop I've ever heard in a wrestling arena. Uh, it's certainly up there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just think he was, uh, he's one of the icons. Like, he's one of the pillars of ROH um, during the early years. So I, I could not not have him on my list. I, I definitely agree with pretty much every well everything you said there. I think 
when I think of Homicide, I think he did so many things that I don't think any other Ring of Honor wrestler really did. I think, like you said, he brought the element of danger. I think he was one of the most believable wrestlers. Like, in terms, like, you believe Thomas, like, I'm convinced Homicide is just Homicide. Like, maybe he's turned up to ten and a half, but I think he's ten at home. Like, I could be completely wrong about that. Maybe he just tweets about Family Guy, but, I mean, I know he does that too, but he just is, you know, there was a those early mat the early feud with Carino. I mean, where Carino really did lose most of the hearing in one of his ears because Homicide hit him like right on the ear and broke his eardrum. I mean, there was just he could be in such brutal stuff and just this sense of danger. And one of the best opening theme songs I think in Ring of Honor history when you hear, heard that Kill Bill siren and then how it cut. Like, you just got excited, I think, every time you heard that and thought something was going to happen. And he was versatile, like you said. Like, you know, he had a million great matches with Brian Danielson, but he also could just, you know, do something brutal and bloody and violent. And I also think another thing that was really unique for him is I think there was a lot of times the best thing in wrestling is that those moments of eventuality where you think, you know, someone's going to win something. It's just a matter of when, and you're really looking forward to it. And I don't think indie wrestling has that, those big kind of longed for much waited for moments as often. And I think that whole, the whole homicide run, baby face run to the title to, you know, being the savior kind of of ROH in the CCW feud where they basically did, like as crazy as it was the Steve Austin kind of, I need the old stone cold thing where, you know, people are begging this kind of tweener anti hero. Can you come save the company? You know, do you love the company please? And you don't know if he's going to do it. And then he just comes and saves the day in like their darkest hour. I mean, they basically did that a lot of the same notes and it was, it was something you don't see a ton in indie wrestling, that kind of that feeling of an angle. It was, like I said, kind of a WWE style angle and it just worked perfectly. And he was so hot then, like just, and it's kind of crazy how quickly that went away. Like I know Gabe saw him as a transitional champ because he thought that, uh, homicide worked better as a guy that chased things rather than as the guy. And he's probably right about that, but it is, it is crazy to think of, how lightning hot he was like in the CZW feud and then, you know, winning it from Brian Danielson and then how quickly it was like one or two defenses lose to Morishima. And then he's kind of back, back down the card again. Well, well keep in mind, he was completely gone from ROH within like three months of that. So maybe Gabe saw the writing on the wall with that too. Um, because, uh, you know, TNA pulled all their wrestlers. Yeah. Um, by like, you know, May 2007. So, so really, you know, I don't think, you know, I think, you know, as much as you could second guess that really wouldn't have ended up mattering anyway. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is interesting to think what if. Um, but yeah, one thing I, I should mention about Homicide, because you mentioned like all the great matches, um, uh, you know, maybe to some people it's sort of like this, you know, an indie style, you know, like pseudo strong style thing. But like 2003, 2004 Homicide, 
might have had more great matches than uh, almost anyone on the roster, at least in that style. You know, he had memorable matches at that time with guys like Trent Acid, um, BJ Whitmer, um, you know, guys that, you know, were not necessarily having so many great matches in ROH at the time. Um, he was having, I mean, I, like you said, the Carino stuff. The Carino stuff, the first two matches they had together, the, uh, the first one uh, and then the barbed wire one, those were great matches. Um, those were some of the first matches I heard, like even people that weren't into Ring of Honor saying like, buy these DVDs for those matches, like kind of matches that were getting buzzed out. I mean, those weren't the, I don't think the first ones, but they were early on in the history. I think people forget about those matches where those were matches where people were going out and telling people like, go out and buy these DVDs if you haven't checked out Ring of Honor out lately. Yeah, they were highlight of Carino's career too. You know, and Carino, who's a guy who you know had much higher profile stuff than Homicide ever had, but I would say though that first match I think between the two of them might be the best Carino match I've seen. Um, I'd have to think more about that, but it's up there. Um, and Homicide, you know, like I said, some of those matches with Joe, he even had like a really good technical match with Danielson in two thousand four. Um, just so much good stuff. He had. Um, you know, a good, like, mid-card match against, like, Nigel McGuinness before McGuinness was, you know, before McGuinness was any sort of big deal there. Um, some of the tag team matches he had with Low Key in 2005. Um, just, um, you know, if you just look at a list of homicide matches from, let's say, 2003 through 2005, there are a lot of really great matches on there. And, you know, that was the time when ROH was, that was what it was all about, putting on those great matches. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, so I feel like Homicide's a pretty strong contender for uh, the end of my 6 to 10 part of the list. Uh, who is your number 6? My number 6 is a guy you've already had on your list, and that would be Low-Key. All right, so let's so, hear it. Low-Key, to me, of anyone on this list, he is the number one kind of peak versus longevity guy. He's the highest guy on my list, kind of in terms of valuing the peak, I would say, where Ring of Honor... and has always been about kind of a, you know, buzz, kind of having the it guy. And Loki was the first it guy. Like, he was the guy the company was built around, even if his world title reign was short, for that first stretch. Not Danielson, you know. You know, it's one of those things where if you're not a fan now, but you're kind of looking back at Ring of Honor and you see all those huge names like Styles and Danielson, you know, low key might look just on paper like one of the na- other names, and while they were all pushed high, it was it was a low key promotion. You know, and he was the guy who just felt so special. You know, there the, no one felt like low key did. No one had that kind of aura. You know, there, a part of that was the idea that oh, maybe low key might accidentally occasionally knock somebody out, but it was more just no one worked quite like low key did. He was one of the only guys who I would say like a super dragon or a necro butcher who just kind of carried himself like he was something special. You know, he kind of demanded that you look at him as something special. Now, obviously, the flip side to this is, you know, his run wasn't that long. And even when he did come back, you know, his run was solid, but it was the run you could tell of a guy where they weren't ever going to fully commit to him again probably where he was and there's a way Gabe treats guys you know when he knows whether due to outside commitments or knowing that they might be a threat to leave or just past problems with them that he's 
you know, I'm still going to feature you heavily on the shows, but you're never going to quite have that full push behind you. And then he, you know, when you look at his run, he wasn't there that long in the grand scheme of things, especially compared to probably most of the people we're putting on these lists. But I just, I think he was so important to the company at the start. And I just am, 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 I am a person that kind of falls for the significance of the first of anything. And so to be kind of like the guy who kicked it off, I just had to put him, this is about as high as I could, uh, as I could justify putting him on the list. But he's also kind of painfully that guy who I honestly do think if he wasn't such a, such a low key about things to put it no better way that, that maybe he could have been one. He could have been not only the top five, maybe top three, maybe one if he had 10 years there, but instead he's, he's six. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I mean, if, if for me, if it, if it wasn't for the longevity, factor he would be top five you know that's the only he's number 10 on my list because of the lack of longevity like i said and honestly if he was there end to end for that four-year run that he was there he still probably would have been top five but you know that that four-year run there were a lot of like gaps in between or he would be like kind of on some shows and not others um but but he was not only so important but so freaking good um he, you know, from, you know, I mean, if you just go down the list and, you know, they used to do it on the ROH DVDs all the time. You know, the first show, he had, you know, epic three-way with Danielson and Daniels. Then the second show, um, you know, all-time classic against Danielson. Then uh, AJ Styles' debut match, and the next show was awesome. Then a very um, famous match against the Amazing Red. Then a really great 60-minute four-way, which is, seems almost impossible to do, but they pulled it off on the next show. Then on the next show, he had another really good match against AJ Styles. Um... Then title match win against uh, loss against Xavier so so but then then he had Samoa Joe's debut match and that was great. Then he was in a couple of great matches like a um, a six man at the at the next show. Um, he was in a great three way with uh, London and Styles. He was in a really good match against Jody Fleisch of all people in uh, in 2003. Um, he had some great squash matches even. And then you know he kind of had the whole falling out. Then he comes back. And I think, you know, ROH had changed even by within a couple of years that since it began. And when he came back in mid-2004, it was kind of Samoa Joe's promotion. And that heel turn was just exactly what he needed. And he kind of changed his style to be a lot more like stomp-oriented. And he kind of put that thug persona, which I felt at that point was a lot cooler than the just me low-key, me real tough, <laughs> strong fighter man persona by that you know by the time that had kind of been played out and i think his he changed to just to just the right effect and i think his partnership with homicide was great like i said with homicide it felt dangerous it felt cool and you know by the by then his run was almost over but before he left he managed to have one more all-time classic against kenta kenta's first match in roh and i still think um you know one of the two or three best ones he ever had there and i think probably one of loki's best matches too um He's just so freaking good, and I don't think there would have been an ROH without Loki. I think that was like, it started out as, like you said, Loki's showcase promotion. So how could you not have him in the top ten? I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think, again, even if you're a person where it's nothing, like I think we both kind of value longevity, but I think even if you're a person where longevity is almost the, your only criteria, I think you have to put him at least ten. Because I think he's that important to the early days. 
Yeah, I agree. And I guess, again, like you said, four years is not that short. He just wasn't around for all of it. Yeah. But, um, but we're ready for our top fives, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So my number five, I don't know, maybe it's controversial, maybe it's not, is Roderick Strong. And I had him all the way at 10. So I wouldn't say it's controversial between us. Maybe I would say probably some people listening to this maybe, but well, f- let's hear your, your case. Well, for me, he's one of two guys – that I would say are benefit the most from their longevity. Um, you know, he was there for you know well over a decade, and I think that he was really great um, both at the beginning, first few years of his run, and at the last couple of years of his run. Um, you know, there was maybe some points in the middle where um, he, uh, you know, he's a little bit more in the background, didn't impress as much. But if you go back to that Generation Next period, you know, when sometimes when he had tag team matches with the four guys or with Jack Evans alone, they were such a dynamic team. I thought his offense, you know, got over really well. I, I, like I said, I went to a lot of ROH shows live then. And his matches, especially in 2005, 2006, got over really, really well. And in 2005, when he really, like, took off as a single and they turned him face, he had quite a run of matches. Matches against AJ Styles, matches against James Gibson. A bunch of matches against Brian Danielson, which I guess have their um, has their uh, detractors, but at the time, people who loved ROH certainly loved those matches. Um, he was just on fire, and uh, you know he cooled off, especially after uh, the whole No Remorse Core thing started, and maybe it took him a while to get picked to pick back up. But you know, by the end of his run there, he was considered one of the best guys on the Indies again. You know, having hour long matches with Jay Lethal, you know, having great matches with guys like Moose. Um, you know, he had a bunch of good matches with um, even like Michael Elgin. Uh, you know, he had a couple of really good uh, ROH title defenses in that short reign that he had there in uh, in 2010. Um, his match against Davey Richards at the same show, uh, the final battle show, where uh, with the Loser Leaves Town match between Generico and Steen, that was one of Richards, I think, best matches, probably better than most of the matches I saw him have while he was champion. Um, I just think Strong's been a perennial guy there and been a reliable guy to have great matches for the whole time. I could I can understand why somebody might find him, you know, maybe boring or mechanical, but he's so consistent. And this is Ring of Honor we're talking about, where like that matters a little bit less. He was certainly over in many many points, and you know the ROH is a company where the great matches matter, and he had a lot because he had a long time to have them. So that's why I say Roderick Strong is a top five guy. Yeah, I, I think, again, he's Mr. Mister Body of Work, Mr. Consistency, and I was a huge fan. Like, one of the things that breaks my heart, well, not that's a little too, a little too much to say that, but one of the things I was bummed about is I wish that the tag team with Jack Evans had an even longer run because I have a huge soft spot for kind of strong guy, high flyer, kind of mixed tag teams and i thought they were one of the best i absolutely just loved the stuff they did i thought that was such a fun dynamic and i loved how it, teaming with jack almost kind of accentuated parts of rot of strong where it was almost you even focused more on kind of oh yeah he's the power guy he's he's almost the arn anderson of generation next he's kind of the, the guy in the background that just does his thing and is just so so consistent and you know, I remember stuff like in some of those tags where I think it was either Dixie or Izzy or I mix all those guys up, but just 
pictures hitting the internet of him just chopping the hell out of them and the guy's chest being disgusting. Like, I remember those memories. But I think he might have the largest body of work of anyone that I would consider for the top 10 of a ring of honor career where just so many good matches for so long. I mean, when they did the whole Mr. ROH thing, he's a guy where you can actually justify it. Even if he's not, you know, Samoa Joe or Brian Danielson, you can say, yeah, it makes sense. Like this guy's been here for so long. Yeah, he is Mr. ROH. And I think it's impressive even that, after that many years of Ring of Honor, near the end, he did kind of find, not just in Ring of Honor, but all over the indies, kind of an extra gear that you didn't know he was capable of finding, where he became like just this consistently good to very good wrestler to, oh my god, he might be one of the best wrestlers in the world for the last couple of years. And I don't know how all of a sudden it just clicked like that, but and it's not even like it was a huge shift. It was just... You start things start getting like just a little bit better with him. Yeah, and that's all it needed to be. And like even in, I'd say in two thousand five, there was a moment where he was almost close close to the cusp of that. And then you know he like I said he cooled off a little bit. Um, you know maybe his tag team stuff with Aries wasn't quite as good as his single stuff before that had been, and he didn't really recover for a long time. But you know and even that was great. Um, so yeah, I mean I don't feel. Um, I don't feel that there's anything to apologize for for putting him that high, and I think he uh, he had a long career of earning it. So uh, so good for him, and I hope that uh, his uh, his WWE run. I hope he gets to do some stuff. <laughs> I guess that's the best you could hope for, right? He gets to do some stuff. <laughs> I hope stuff happens. Yes, exactly. Uh, who's your number five? My number five is a guy who did quite a lot of stuff, and he's probably on your list. And that would be Nigel McGuinness. He is actually not on my top ten. Wow, that's a, that's kind of a surprise for me. Um, I'll, I'll lay out my case then for a top five, which is sure. um, I think he has a big body of work, but I think he also has some of the absolute high-end things. I think one of the things that makes me love Nigel McGuinness is his ROH run is he turned the pure title into something that you looked forward to. Not just, ah, oh, this will probably be a good match with some weird rules. I think that whole gimmick where, you know, he started winning matches by countouts and he found different ways to manipulate the rules to win where he was, he was smart, but he was cheating and a dick. And I, I, I just absolutely love that run. That's one of my favorite parts of ring of honor from that era. I think some of my favorite matches were some of ring of honor were the Daniel, some of those Danielson matches. I think, one big thing that shows how much how good those matches were, at least to me, was Brian Danielson at the time was my favorite wrestler in the whole world. He still might be, even though he's not wrestling, I think his work rate on Talking Smack is still high. Yeah. But but always revealing things about other wrestlers that they don't want revealed. And but just, and just such a likable person. <laughs> yeah, just so likable. But I remember when he was doing the unification match with the pure title in the world title against Nigel, I remember reading the results that night and just praying like, Oh, I thought Nigel might win. I thought don't win. I want Danielson to keep winning. I love this rain. I love him. And then when I got the DVD, like a month or two later, I remember watching the match. And even though Danielson was my favorite wrestler in the world thinking Nigel should have won this, like, 
like that's how good the match was. That's how good he was in the match. That's how good that moment was. I think that's one of my all-time kind of favorite moments where it turned even me into thinking, no, th- this should have gone the other way. Also, that match alone turned Nigel face, basically. Yeah. And in a way, it's one of those matches that for some of us, it might be hard to watch now with some of like the Nigel getting his head rammed into the turnbuckle to bust himself open hard way, right. kind of knowing what happened to his career. But his world title run, I think that's what hurts him with a lot of people is it was a, it was a run that maybe that wasn't the right moment for him. Maybe it went on too long because it, it, it was a very long title reign he had. And I know at some points all the injuries kind of, you know, he kept getting nagged by injuries and, you know, th- there's a lot of negatives to that title run, but there's also just a metric ton of really good matches. And I feel like he gave a ton of himself for that company. He 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 worked so hard for that company and he probably didn't quite get even with that kind of long rank, he probably didn't quite get back what he put into it. But the Danielson matches, I I think for a long time, it's probably different now. I think Kevin Steen said that the, a match he had with Nigel McGuinness was like one of his proudest matches in our, like in, in his entire career. Like he, he, sometimes in interviews, you would see him talk about that match, the kind of the, that mat, the way, uh, Sting would talk about his beach blast match with Cactus Jack, where it'd almost be like you could almost he- hear him sigh and kind of stare dreamily off into the distance and like fantasize about how much he enjoyed it. And I just think he kind of is a little of both worlds. He is kind of a bit of the longevity, but also I think he had some like real company highlights. Yeah. Um, you know, it's tough for me to explain why I don't have him in my top 10 because, you know, I don't necessarily know that I totally understand it. I've been a huge Nigel McGuinness fan uh, since the first time I saw him wrestle, you know, even before, you know, he became like, you know, strong style Nigel before he won the pure title, just, you know, you know, like, you know, when he was doing sort of like an indie-ish version of the British style, you know, there was just something about him. And, you know, I saw, I've seen him have so many of his great matches live and, you know, I was following, you know, during the peak of his career. And I think maybe part of the stuff thing that hurts him is sort of like you said, his title reign came in a time when ROH was starting a decline. And, I, you know, it wasn't his fault. It was just sort of a bad coincidence um, that, 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 you know, a line like that. But, yeah, I think... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, his title ring, I think, definitely kind of, like, it, it lined up, like, you like lined up as the perfect phrase, like, with the stagnation of kind of Gabe's booking, and, and he, that's not his fault, but I guess you could say he didn't rise above it either. Yeah, that said, the angle where he turned heel because of his injuries and, you know, resenting the crowd for resenting him for the injuries... And, you know, it was sort of like a slow burn heel turn. Um, no rhyme intended. Um, and, you know, all culminating with that, the anniversary show where he wrestled Danielson and kind of did a, like, sort of did like a full double turn, even though Danielson wasn't quite a, a heel. Um, you know, Danielson became like full babyface ROH supporter that night. And McGinnis came, became like full crowd taunting heel that night. And it was just, it was brilliantly done. Um, you know, one of the all-time great, like, one-night angles slash matches the, they ever did. And 
Um, you know, he had a few more matches where, you know, his heel stuff really stood out great, you know, kind of like escaping by the skin of his teeth. I could think of a couple of matches he had against uh, Tyler Black. Um, there was a four-way with uh, him against Tyler Black, uh, Claudio and uh, Dragon, and it was down to him and Tyler Black, and, you know, you everyone just thought that Tyler Black was going to win the title, and he just kind of escaped by the skin of his teeth. You know, maybe Tyler Black actually should have won the title there. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know, but... You know, uh, so you know, he he was really managed to be a great performer that whole time. Um, like I said, I think just his uh, that period just aligns with maybe not the best period for ROH's booking, and then his career kind of had an unfortunate ending. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think maybe that's why he's not as well regarded as you know you might want him to be or as um you know in that you know top five level but it's certainly putting him in the top five makes sense given the argument that you laid out mm-hmm. so i think we're good for number four now all right well my number four is a guy that you mentioned and that is austin aries um and you know i'm i guess maybe i'm like the i'm like one of austin aries biggest fans as far as like the internet wrestling community i don't know because when i when i watched austin aries in roh for all those years you know, I just thought he was, you know, absolutely top tier, an elite wrestler. And this is going all the way back to, you know, before his character was fully fleshed out. Um, you know, when he was just sort of like the young buck on the scene with the uh, with Generation Next, and then he won the title from Samoa Joe. Just his wrestling was so smooth. His he was so explosive. His athleticism was so clear. And then he sort of developed this persona. You know, and he was in ROH for a pretty long time, and, I, you know, he had more than one title reign, I thought he was great in both title reigns. I think, you know, his second reign suffered from some of the same stuff McGinnis's did, which is, you know, it was just not a great period for ROH's booking. But he had lots of great matches during that entire time, um, which is hugely important. Like, you saw him become an overall much more confident and better performer in that time, and... Uh, I can, you know, I like I said, I can go down a list of great matches. I think he's one of Danielson's best opponents. Um, I think, you know, his 2004 matches, um, you know, with Danielson, he uh, his match with Joe, he had some matches with Punk, just so good. Um, I, I when I when when I did the first episode of List Him and Learn, and I was listing the top 20 um, workers um, in the U.S. from 2000 to um, to 2014, he was really high on that list too. Like I just think he's so good. Um, or at least was in his prime and, you know, a little bit after it. Um, so, and considering that he was one of their early champions, the first two-time champion, I think he's one of the guys you associate with ROH. Um, I just feel I had to keep, I had to have him this high. He's just, I just find him to be so incredibly good. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a person that doesn't quite like Austin Aries as most as a lot of people, but I put him at seven still, which I think is pretty high i mean and i think i think the thing that puts him a little lower for me is gabe tried really hard with him to make him kind of like the next it guy and i never think he kind of got quite to the level that guys like key and joe and danielson would get kind of around his reign but at the same time he was by far like not a failure at all and when you consider the fact that he was the guy that had to follow Samoa Joe just not being completely rejected it to me is is a is a huge win right there yeah and I would actually argue that his title reign his first title reign you know sh- shortish as it may be by ROH standards 
produced some of the best, most consistent shows in booking they ever did in ROH. Um, you know, I mean, obviously that wasn't him that did it, but you know, the fact that he was in the championship role during that time, I think, is a feather in his cap. Yeah, and also a huge challenge. Again, he had to be on top during probably one of the best kind of like full up and down show periods of ROH history where just so much good stuff happening all over the card and he's the guy who has to main event a lot of the time like just a real tough position for anyone to be put in and and he you know he did not drop the ball at all and I think the tag team again with Roderick Strong another thing I didn't quite like is some people but it was kind of a thing it kind of built the tag titles back up after a period where they maybe weren't quite as red hot as they could have been i would say they were the first tag team champions in roh to really make the t- tag team titles feel like a big deal yeah to have a lengthy reign after both guys had kind of established themselves as singles guys a little bit yeah you know it, it felt almost like a super team in a weird way for guys that hadn't been in the company that long like oh man like strong and and aries like just in focusing on tag stuff and i think the early match, the two out of three falls with Danielson was, you know, it was great in some ways. It was in some ways excessive. It would have been even more excessive, I guess, if Danielson had his way to make it three one-hour draw falls, <laughs> which I still to this day is one of wrestling's to me crazy what-ifs of how that would have rea- how people would have reacted if it was like a two-DVD set and one of them was a three-hour draw, basically, between it- Danielson. It's one of the things that you love about those guys. It's like that they were they were they were super young at that time, but so like artistically ambitious. Like that's you yeah. know, sort of what made ROH ROH is that th- those were the guys anchoring the promotion. And, and that's one of the things I think. Looking back at fifteen years of ROH, that's one of the great things that maybe ROH has lost a bit. Is just that that it, it was a playground sometimes for really creative, ambitious wrestlers that were just like, "Hey, can we try this?" And sometimes it felt like. I know in the old days, people used to kind of harp on Gabe for being like, oh, half of Gabe's ideas are just the wrestler's ideas. But a lot of bookers wouldn't have said yes to some of those ideas, you know. Right. And I think it's, it's credit to everyone involved that a lot of those ideas kind of came to fruition like that. But back to Aries, I think another thing that helps him is, you know, the second title reign maybe wasn't the greatest era for ROH, but I think actually – him kind of becoming more of a, you know, the greatest man that ever lived character, kind of becoming a little more over the top. I think it was kind of surprising for me that it came from him, and I think he pulled it off. I, I think that I think he's actually a guy who always had charisma, but actually has noticeably in recent years kind of even gotten better. You know, he's now he's pretty actually really good on the mic, you know, when you hear him do commentary and stuff. Where before he was just kind of this cocky guy that had some charisma where i think if you watch his entire two ring of honor runs you can kind of see him kind of just grow into someone that's not just a guy with some natural charisma but like legitimately entertaining like in angles on the mic you can count on him yeah he is he is a really good entertainer who also happens to be a really good athlete which is what you want from wrestler so perfect um yeah okay so what about you who is your number four my number four is someone you already had on the list, and that's CM Punk. Uh, yes. I, uh, I figured I would be the, the low guy for CM Punk, despite the fact that he is uh, 
among my all-time favorite wrestlers. But go ahead, uh, make your case. Uh, CM Punk is just, you know, going back to almost about the Kevin Steen stuff, you know, he is one of the great angle guys in a promotion, you know, that was often not focused on angles. He was one of the great promo guys. Um, I think the Summer of Punk thing was one of the kind of great twists that Ring of Honor ever had where you knew he was leaving and they kind of found a way, you know, in a promotion that catered so much to people that were reading newsletters and, and the hardest of hardcore fans to kind of create a twist like that where, yeah, we're, we know you know he's leaving, but we're still going to have fun with this. I think that was just such a fun kind of moment that maybe a lot of wrestlers couldn't have pulled off even. You know, the early stuff, I think Raven was one of the first kind of angles where I think that one of those original straight edge promos where he talked about his dad being an alcoholic. I think that was one of the first times in Ring of Honor history where I heard people say, you have to see this promo, not you have to see this match. Like, this is worth buying, not worth buying a DVD, but... Something that's like, oh yeah, there's a there's a fairly entertaining promo or segment on this show too. It was like, no, like this is one of the things you should talk about when you watch this Ring of Honor show is a promo, and that was him. Among the only times in ROH history any anyone's ever said that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, yeah, that's actually, yeah, we sh- we should go that far because I don't think there's many guys where the promos were actually like a selling point, and you know. He was never the absolute elite worker, but I mean, some of the best matches in history were those Samoa Joe matches in Ring of Honor history. And I, even stuff like the Jimmy Ray feud, the, you know, he, he was just, you liked seeing, you know, other wrestlers, you liked seeing, oh, I like, I can't wait for that match for him. I liked when I could tell a program was starting with him. Like, I was like, oh boy, I can't wait to see these guys have like three or four matches and a bunch of promos. He just made the whole kind of, he made it feel more like like you were watching for more just than just matches. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the few guys in early ROHs that did that. I mean, he brought you know that certain level of like pathos and uh, you know to the entertainment uh, portion of the show. Uh, you know, which you didn't really have that much of an ROH. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, he doesn't have that much longevity there. It's one of the things that maybe kept him out of my top five. Um, but he was the probably greatest character in ROH history. I mean, he was a guy that I think a lot of people looked at in the early 2000s as being, you know, like, a, you know, just like a very indie style worker, you know, the way he dressed. You know, the way his moves looked and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, very indie. And I think he managed to take, you know, that and turn himself into this, like, mainstream celebrity in American culture, which I think really speaks to just how talented he was overall. And then, you know, he had great brawls in ROH, but um, like you said, he also had two of the wrestling matches or three of the wrestling matches that put ROH on the map. You know, a lot of people still call the any one of those matches with Samoa Joe the greatest match in ROH history. And, you know, that wasn't all Joe. That was Punk, too. Punk um, added a lot to those matches and the stories of those matches. So you could see him growing into what would become, in his own way, a great worker, too. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's just such an iconic figure. Um, you know, certainly the biggest celebrity to come out of the indie wrestling scene. Um you know, at least one of two. I would say he's the biggest. 
Um, and, um, you know, he defined an era in a lot of ways, not just in ROH, but in a lot of other indie promotions too. But his ROH run was, uh, was really memorable. So, um, so yeah, I think I, a very strong contender for that, for that top five, even though I didn't put him in there. I think the one other point I want to make is something you said got me thinking where you said how indie he was. I think that reminds me of like, just how crazy it was where he had this aura of being like one of the coolest guys. But when you kind of look back with the benefit of hindsight, you see this kind of skinny guy in big basketball shorts with like a horrible dye job. I think, you know, CM Punk even himself would joke about where, where he would go to things i think like with samoa joe people would just assume he has to be a celebrity because he looks so awful (laughs) like it's crazy to think but he really was even then if you look back it almost looks like a you would people would go really this guy was like the coolest guy people thought but they really did i really did you know well that's part of what makes him cool though when you when like one of the things i think we can all agree that makes somebody cool is when they don't is when they just do their own thing, right? And don't yeah. don't worry too much about, you know, people judging them, right? So like Punk didn't try to look like this uh, you know, hulking wrestling star and that, you know, just made him cooler than everybody else. Yeah. I think. Also just having that I don't give a shit attitude and really wearing it on his sleeve. Um and, you know, he fought and clawed because he wasn't a natural athlete, I think he'll admit that. He fought and clawed into becoming a great a great wrestler. And he did. Yeah. I think he did anyway. I think he's a guy like thought, fought and clawed. That's perfect because I don't think he had a ton of natural athletic ability, as you might be able to tell by watching his like UFC documentaries. I think he earned like every single thing he he got. I think he earned. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the guys that you could really see his hard work, like in every step of his career. He yeah. just worked his ass off, and he uh, did not make it look effortless. He made it look like it took a lot of work, but it was still really, really good. Yeah, he did it. He pulled it off. Um, all right, so now top three. I'm very curious to see if uh, our top threes align. Yeah. Um, all right, so my number three is Jay Briscoe. And mine is, I kind of cheated. I put the Briscoes together uh, at three. See, I wanted to do that. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking the other way. All right, I would do it. Uh, but since I put Jay Briscoe, I'm going to go with Jay Briscoe. Um, Mark certainly would be, is a painful omission for me, um, but Jay Briscoe, um, you know, the, the king of longevity in ROH, you know, him and Roderick Strong were the two, but Jay Briscoe wins. He was on the very first ROH show. He's been on the very most recent ROH shows. He's still good, and it's, I mean, when you talk about watching someone's evolution, you know, the guy was, what, 18, 19 at the first ROH show, and he was just this, like, oversized, big, pimply kid. And to see, you know, totally awkward, totally goofy, um, you know, good athlete, but, you know, just, it was just a very, very awkward. And to see him morph into this, like, you know, southern wrestling god, um, but also be this, like, big badass uh, who carries himself like a badass, who's been a two-time ROH champion on his own, um, who's had great matches when he was a kid, when he's an adult, um, had some controversies too, things that he said that I certainly don't like, but we're judging him uh, from his wrestling persona only, um, and he never did that on TV. Um, I, uh, I I find it very impressive. Like that, he, I mean, it's 
it's a shame because I, I uh, that he won't get a chance at a bigger stage because I think that the Briscoes could have been big stars in WWE. I guess maybe it's still possible. Who knows? Um, if they don't completely destroy themselves, I, I'm actually shocked they haven't destroyed themselves yet because they've wrestled a very physical style, a lot of head drops from a very young age, um, and they seem to have made it through with uh, their brains intact and their bodies intact to a to a point. So good on them. But yeah, what longevity? Um, you know, tons of great tag team matches, tons of great, or at least a, a decent amount of great singles matches. Um, I'd say one of the better champions of the modern era. So uh, I, I just, you know, this guy, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, just how iconic my top two were at the beginning of ROH, I would say this guy was Mr. ROH for sure. But uh, I'll let you talk about the Briscoes as a tag team. Yeah, uh, I feel guilty for kind of cheating, but I couldn't leave Mark Briscoe off because I love Mark Briscoe so, so, so much. Uh, I originally liked Mark Briscoe more than Jay in the early days, maybe because just the little, I thought he was a better seller. I liked the, like, the little brother angle, gave me sympathy for him. And I just loved even in the first few years where he would do stuff like botch a shooting star press and land on his head and then sell it like he would sell the botch like <laughs> like like someone had done something to him i mean but i mean they are the tag team of ring of honor like if this was a top 10 tag teams of ring of honor history there there's no there's no argument to them even and though I there's th- been some sorry and i think they are doing that list and yeah you can't possibly pick anyone but them yeah i mean people are allowed their opinions but there are some opinions i guess occasionally that are wrong that that's just a wrong opinion to not put them at number one i they are again along i think with guys like roderick strong like you said the case for longevity more than anybody in ring of honor but i think unlike a lot of people i don't think anyone and you were talking about this too quite grew up in front of your eyes in ring of honor the way the briscoes did not just physically although like they they basically grew into men and physically but i remember that first time they had kind of left for a little bit and came back and you know their their music was different their clothes were different and they started wrestling different you know they started doing the like just more power stuff like the football double tackle you know they you know they really and then in the last few years where they kind of then did like another change again as characters where, you know, starting to do more like on location at their farm promos and really like focus on kind of like the crazy southernness of it all. And, you know, Mark with no dang front teeth and doing the Kung Fu karate more and more. And just, you know, they're guys that they have consistently, you know, just like you've seen their entire development and they were really good right off the bat like that's the that's the thing even when they were more of the kind of bald pimply generic they were kind of prodigies for their age oh yeah and and then they managed to kind of fill in like literally fill in with the size and then kind of fill in the character as they went along but they were always like that first even i think at the first boston show in ring of honor that first jay versus mark briscoe match they had in ring of honor that's a match way better than two guys that young have any right having. And they were so good even then. And I agree, it's really sad that they're not probably going to get a run. Maybe they will in WWE. But at the same time, it's almost, in terms of Ring of Honor list, it's almost like they're almost going to stand out if they never leave as being the 
the kind of the people that never left. Yeah, they like, are they are the combined stings of Ring of Honor. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's true. I mean they, I mean you could just go down the list from early on, just uh, the great tag team they from all the way from when they were wrestling um, uh, Styles and uh, and Red, and then they had great matches with Aries and Strong. Great, an amazing feud with uh, Generico and Steen. Great matches with um, with the Young Bucks. Um, you know, just, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Great matches with a lot of, um, you know, visiting uh, stars from Japan over the years as well. You know, I think they, they really have ma- managed to hold their own against those guys or uh, with those guys, I guess, would be more accurate. So, yeah, I mean, they're they're an amazing couple of guys. I, you know, I think that, you know, the reason I say it's sad that they never have a bigger run is because I think there's going to be a lot of wrestling fans that will never ever see them wrestle. And yeah, that's, that's sad because you know, and to a lot of us, they are uh, you know among the most prolific uh, wrestlers of the past uh, you know twenty years. And especially with their character work now and their promos being so good, like they are in a way tailor made now for WWE. Although I worry what Vince McMahon would do if he saw one of their promos and decide just to like exaggerate it even more. But I mean. They'd have a hell of a run in NXT, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Great run in NXT, and then they'd be, like, having, like, wacky skits with the new day on Raw. But, exactly. I mean, they, they deserve it just for the exposure. And going back, uh, just to finish off a little bit with what you said about uh, Jay, I mean, I'm really glad, at least, that he got kind of the title run. Like, I was a little skeptical at first, like, uh, this is just one of those... Oh, he's been here a long time, but he was good, really good at it, and I think it actually freshened up the tag team, having him kind of focus more on the singles for a while. And even even early on, I think like that cage match, the feud with Samoa Joe early on from Jay Briscoe, like he could have had a really good singles career all by himself. And it's kind of it's hard to say that Briscoes are adorable, but it's adorable that they've they've basically stuck it together like as a unit for their entire careers. Yeah, they they you know they did a few kind of like little breakups you know here and there, but they never they never went with the easy like big breakup angle because really you know even though they've had some good matches over the years, do we really want to see them against each other like, or do we want to see them as a team? Because I I I, I say we want to see them as a team. Yeah. Um. All right, top two. Um, I think the question is basically just um, which order is it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'm gonna guess that we probably have it in the same order, given some other stuff that you said. But you know, who knows? We're you're full of surprises. Um, my number two is Samoa Joe. That's not my number two. Okay, so there we go. My my number two is Brian Danielson. So yeah, I think favorite, we can just your favorite wrestler is number two. That's right. I'm going to explain it. I know when I said that earlier, that led P- that probably yeah. threw you off the trail. But yeah, so I think it's safe to say. All right, so my number one is Joe Danielson two. Yours is yeah, the other Danielson way. one, Joe two. Yeah, and I I think there's a strong case to be made either way. I don't think that it's obvious in either direction. So I think both permutations are fine. Okay, so. I guess we can talk about Danielson. I'll just... I, I think I kind of have to talk about both a little bit here because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's this, just talk about both. Let's just talk yeah, about both. This was the hardest thing I had to do on this whole list. 
I went back and forth all the way up till today from a week or more ago when I knew I was going to do this show. I kept the first thing I did when I made this list before I did anything else was I knew Joe and Danielson are in my top two. I don't know what order, but I know right away it, it, there, that's the only thing that was a complete no brainer. Like these two are the top two. And I kept going back and forth because Brian Danielson was, is my favorite wrestler, or at least was. I mean, it, it, I don't know how you want to phrase it, but when I kept thinking about just the Ring of Honor career, even though Brian Danielson built so much of his career in Ring of Honor, I started thinking about significance. And to me, the best moments Samoa Joe ever had are the best moments a lot of the best moments Ring of Honor ever had. And some of those, Danielson had some of those too, but if you just ask me, who, who do I think of when I think of Ring of Honor as a whole? The first person that pops in my head is Samoa Joe, and then Danielson. And I feel it's like one of those things where my head says Danielson. When I, when I just pour over the matches, my head says Danielson, but my heart says Joe. And I think the way I can kind of describe it is Brian Danielson is absolutely incredible. One of the best wrestlers of his generation. I absolutely think he should have been in the observer hall of fame, not just this year, but on the first ballot, but he is the white short, amazingly gifted technical wrestler. And there's been guys like that before, and there will be guys like that for generations after him. And he is one of the best that's ever done that. But I don't think there's going to be a ton more Samoa Joes. I don't think there's going to be a ton of guys that, yeah, there'll be Samoan wrestlers, there'll be big wrestlers, but the thing that's crazy about Samoa Joe is he had to give off the aura of being like this badass destroyer, but he also had to be in, and while he did have a few squashes, he also had to give competitive DVD selling matches and keep that aura. You know, and he walked that line, and I don't think there's many wrestlers in history that have been asked to walk that line and successfully walked it the way he did, where he would give guys just enough where the match was competitive and exciting, but you still came away thinking that guy's a scary mother, you know, ever, just in case some six-year-olds are listening to this. He's still, like, the most brutal guy, you know, he's just the man. And he kind of had like a little bit of the flair vibe of being just like this cool guy while still being this absolute destroyer. And even stuff like the, the punk matches were worked in a way where this big guy could surprise you by working 60-minute matches to draws. And still, you didn't come away thinking, oh man, he's not as tough as I thought he was. Like, And I don't think many guys in the wrestling history could do what Joe did. Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of what you said I agree with, just like, you know, maybe the slight opposite of that. Um, but you make, you know, you make a strong case. You make a really strong case. I um, I guess what I would say is Danielson wins on the just personal affection and slight longevity argument. Uh, he was around longer. He had more chance to make more great matches. I personally you know, just connect with him more. That said, um, you know, what you said about Joe, like, let me put it a different way, you know, it, to, to, and this is an argument in Joe's favor. Brian Danielson came in and sort of 
took the mantle from Samoa Joe, took over Joe's Ring of Honor. Samoa Joe took, walked into Ring of Honor as it was and completely recreated it in his image. And that's a big difference, right? Joe created something. Danielson just took that thing over. Because um, I would say that the, the Ring of Honor that existed when Samoa Joe lost the title in the end of 2004 was entirely different than the Ring of Honor where Samoa Joe won the title in early 2003. Would you agree with that? Just the, the oh, vibe is different? The, the absolutely. Tone. Like, I, I think the rise of Ring of Honor is, like, tied into the r- rise of Samoa Joe. Like, they're almost inseparable. Like, the, the title, the company, and him all grew, like, simultaneously. Like, one did not help the other as much as they just kind of rose together. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's a really strong argument. He was the guy who first put on these matches that were getting five stars in the Observer. You know, nothing had been had gotten five stars in the Observer in the United States since like 2007. Then all of a sudden, Samoa Joe comes along with has these matches with Punk, and you know, he's like he's like the old, he brings back the old school champion. You know, and in, in not too long, um, you know, even WWE was giving guys really long title reigns again, um, which you know hadn't happened too often. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and Joe created, like, you know, a legacy for himself. I don't think that too many bookers would have looked at Samoa Joe and said, this is going to be the, the guy. Um, but Gabe did, and he was totally right. Um, and, um, yeah, Joe lived up to it. I mean, if you look at that run of matches, he was doing things that, you know, no one else was doing. Like you said, that vibe of, like, badass bruiser, but also could have these great technical world title matches. And, you know, but some of these brawls, like, you know, even his squash matches, like, if you watch his match against Jay Briscoe from um, At Our Best 2004, the cage match, in a lot of ways that's a squash match, but it's, like, the most exciting squash match you'll ever see, Um, because it's, like, you know, about 15 minutes long, there's some hope spots, there's blood, it's insane, and just... You know, Joe's execution, I mean, you know, Joe was a pretty young guy at the time, and his execution was incredible. His speed, all that stuff. He was mm-hmm. he was a revelation. And um, and I and I do think that's a strong mark in his favor favor. What I, you know, I've talked about Brian Danielson so much that I, I I almost feel like it's impossible for me to talk about him anymore. But, you know, his uh, he you know, you could see an evolution in him from the beginning of ROH till, you know, his, the time that he left too, that's, you know, maybe not quite as dramatic as the Jay Briscoe's uh, evolution, but, you know, he's this, um, you know, very, um, you know, I think he's considered more of like an Iceman character, very, uh, you know, si- you know, strong but silent type, very technical, and he morphs into this kind of like, fun, you know, he, there's almost like a fun-loving quality to him, very charismatic, um, you know, kind of a craftsman when it comes to putting together matches, um, and you can, you know, see, you see that before your eyes and, you know, I think we could both agree one of the, you know, the greatest wrestler, one of the greatest wrestlers of his generation. And I'd say if you're one of the greatest wrestlers of your generation, that makes you one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Um, and I don't know if Samoa Joe has gotten to the point where he would be like an, a hall of famer yet. Although I wouldn't complain if he got into the hall of fame. I doubt that he would at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you would agree with me on that. Um, see- See, I think that's the, in a way, that's part of my argument, I would say, for Joe at one is, I don't think he is a Hall of Famer, but I think, and I think that's because nothing, I mean, he did have some good stuff in TNA, he did have some good stuff in other indies, his NXT run's been, uh, I would say it's been fairly good, but not great, Yeah. but... TNA, TNA, I would say he's, um, 
he was one of the most important people to making TNA a viable promotion also. His, him showing up in TNA coincided with the best run in TNA history. Yeah, I, I mean, some of the best matches they ever had were Joe matches. I mean, the best buy rates they ever did were the two angle matches. But I would say, you know, by far, Joe's best work came in Ring of Honor. And it was one of, it's one of those things where I think Danielson would have put on great work wherever he went. And Joe would have too to some degree, but I don't, I can't see Ring of Honor and I think Ring of Honor and Joe needed each other more than Danielson and Ring of Honor needed each yeah. other. I would consider Joe and Sapolsky like a very important partnership in kind of creating American indie wrestling at the time, and I would say modern American wrestling in general, because I still think that even in WWE we're seeing the results of Samoa Joe and Ring of Honor. Yeah. I, and again, th- there will be more mobile big men. There will be more like badass champs. But even his promos, like he did not play the savage. He did not play like the angry guy who screamed a lot. Although he could scream and get emotional, a lot of times he was like calm and and gave off this aura of coolness. Like he he walked different lines that I think not many wrestlers did. He made yeah he he did a con- he made a combination of I'd say like old school wrestling like Nick Bockwinkel style champion with kind of like a modern like this is an athlete vibe and I think yeah he did it brilliantly he made he invented something new I would say in American wrestling and you know I agree like if it makes me it makes me question my pick you know I'm still gonna stick with it but very well, strong, very strong case for him at number one I'll talk a bit about Danielson and I think. then you'll probably feel better but i i guess the other things about joe is just the fact that i think the two kind of biggest dvds that i remember were the the joe i mean the draws with punk and the kabashi match like we haven't even really talked about the kabashi match how how huge a dvd that was how huge a moment that was for the company yeah i mean like I've, i've said a few times like i was there for that the closest thing that i could compare like to a like a religious experience at a wrestling event. Just the way people were reacting to that was like they were witnessing some sort of like miracle that was happening in front of them. I mean, that crowd, I mean, was loud from start to finish. They, they, they could not stop. And, you know, Ray Mars, the company, when you look at its history, they've had a lot of like foreign guest stars and, other than Dragon Gate, you know, Kabashi was the most successful, probably. And I don't think anyone else could do that match with Kabashi. Like, yeah, you're right. No, no one else could. And I, I think, I guess transitioning a bit to Danielson, the thing that made it hard, though, the pick hard for me is, I think Danielson's stuff before the war, in Ring of Honor, before his world title run, I might enjoy more than Joe stuff after his world title run. But just those certain special moments may, I couldn't break away from those special moments Joe had, but Danielson, I mean, I love Danielson and I love, I, I think I love, um, how do I say this? Like his title reign, he, he like, I can't. I'm getting speechless over this. Um, 
he was such a good tweener, like in in not like the Steve Austin way. He was such a good tweener. In I think I remember reading the Observer at the time. Dave said the idea was him to be a Nick Bockwinkle type, or not not Nick Bockwinkle type, but a I think a Dory Funk type who could be a face against the heels and a heel against the faces. Right. And he found a character where that completely made sense. Like people say, Danielson didn't have good characters, but the first character he came up with was perfect for that role where I would basically describe it as he was like this cocky bastard, but you couldn't hate him because he was probably telling the truth. Like, like, yeah, he was being an arrogant asshole saying he was the best, but then you'd watch him go, well, he is the best, you know, I mean, clearly the best. Yeah. Yeah. How can I be mad at him? Even though he's kind of rubbing it in my face like this, you know, and people used to, people used to criticize him for like his heel character was a little bit of like a winking, heel character I, you, I'm sure you recall those uh, yes yeah but my argument always it was he first of all he wasn't a pure heel a and B that's the best you can do in ROH when you're that good like you have to work with what you have and like he was like he was smarmy and sarcastic and gave a wink and that was intentional it wasn't like that wasn't like by accident so I, I don't really buy that argument either yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with the crowd being in on the joke either. Like, yeah. like a perfect spot of his was the I have till five spot where I think it sums up that character perfectly where he's being a jerk, but he's not breaking the rules. And what he's doing is actually smart. Like he's bending things and you could say, oh, you know, it's a heel spot that's meant just to get a pop. So that's not good healing. But the whole point of his character was being that kind of middle road, you know. Yeah, and um, and as he was doing it, it's not like the crowds weren't taking his matches seriously. Quite the opposite, they were like his matches were. I mean, you know, just there was an entirely different aura when Danielson was in the ring than when anyone else was. He carried himself, you know, much the same way Joe did, like the champion. And that's a really hard thing to pull off, no matter how great a wrestler you are, is knowing how to be the champion. And he was. And before that, he was just. You know, he still his matches still had a special vibe, and after that, his matches still had a special vibe. And you know, once he established himself, you know, in WWE, the same thing happened. He just knew how to be a star, um, which you know maybe was counterintuitive to people that were watching him in 2002, but he did. And uh, like you said, when you like think of Ring of Honor, the first name you associate with it is Joe. For me, it's always going to be Danielson. You know, maybe it's because I was at a lot of those shows during the Danielson era, um, and. Maybe not. I don't know. But I'm Ring of Honor to me is is Brian Danielson. He was there from the beginning. He was there. Um, you know, he you know had one of the legendary title reigns. Like I said, he kind of took the mantle of Joe's promotion. Like he didn't change mm-hmm. it the way Joe did, but he owned it when he was there. Yeah. He 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 owned the crowd. He owned the ring. He uh, I think he owned the other wrestlers. Like I th- th- that was you know. That's to me. I'm always going to associate it with Brian Danielson. He's the uh, he's the Bruno Sammartino to me of of um, of ROH. And I think another great another. I mean, this I have to emphasize. This was such a tough choice for me, and I kept going back and forth. I think one thing Danielson was kind of made for the ROH kind of DVD buyer era, the era of. You didn't watch a guy once, 
you know, watch a guy work a six minute match once a week and then a 15 minute match on pay-per-view once a month. This was a guy you were watching long form matches of his multiple ones. He worked a month in different places where he was a guy, I, I think he describes it as he just gets bored a lot, but he was constantly just tweaking things every few months. Like, you know, changing a move here, a move there. He would just get bored and decide to make something else his finisher. Like he would go, most wrestlers, once they find something that works, they stick to it unless until it doesn't work anymore. And he would just drop things that worked because he was bored with them. And because he was so talented, he could like, remember that time when he just started getting the airplane spin over again in wrestling It became this huge spot. And then he just dropped it again because he just got bored with it. You know, some wrestlers, once they found out that it was that over, they would have been doing a, a airplane spin in every match they did for the rest of their career. And he didn't because he was that good and that original. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of, and that's, I mean, and that's true of both of them, right? They're, they were, Joe and Danielson, they were that good and that original. They were their own, they were their own thing. And, you know, an indie promotion, you know, could really use that. They could, they, they could really use, um, they could really use their their own thing. And sorry about that. Something popped up on my uh, on my computer. Um, and you know, I think a lot of indie promotions, you know, never get that. You know, um, you know, ECW in a lot of ways was made off of you know a guy like Terry Funk, and then they kind of um, they kind of used that to create their own stars, and they kind of you know did their own thing. ROH from the beginning had guys that were just doing something different you know they weren't you know there was a lot of you know influence from japan a lot of influence from guys like benoit and tajiri and eddie guerrero but you know what made roh i think stand out was that they took all these like new indie talents that were really like doing something fresh and you know they they didn't really need um to have a guy like terry funk on there um to give people the rub they just created something brand new to an audience that was hungry for it and i think that you know low-key was obviously a big example of that but i think that nobody were bigger examples of that than joe and danielson yeah and i think the one other thing i have to say about danielson is he uh i think he's underrated as a character guy like i remember the exact show where i think i felt I felt like he really jumped to the next level as a character guy. It was a show, it was like a, I think it was a dual CCW ROH show early on in the feud. Yeah, where, I, mean, I knew you were going to say that one. ECW Arena, right? Yeah, I think so, where um, he works delirious, and the crowd is half full of CCW fans, and you know they're shitting on the match just to shit on it because they hate ROH guys. And to them, Brian Danielson is one of the symbols of ROH and one of the symbols of overrated, boring, vanilla wrestling. It's not the stuff we like. And a lot of wrestlers, and maybe even Danielson years earlier, would have just ignored them and worked their straight-up match, or some guys might have panicked. And he starts getting really playful and relaxed and, like, mocking them and just having fun. And he's so at ease. I remember watching that match and being just like, he's found something new. Like, there's something he's taken a step here in terms of his character while also being, like, the greatest wrestler in the world. And at the end, of, by the end of that match, I mean, it's a very good match. It's not an amazing match. But at the end of that match, the whole crowd's pretty much into it. Like, he won over a crowd just through his interactions and his work that wanted to just shit on him just to shit on him. 
and they couldn't even help themselves anymore. And to me, I think of so many amazing matches he had, but that's one of the matches I always think about with him because it was just an example of just how how talented he could be. I think that's almost like a mini version of what he did at Mania 30 where there's a crowd after Undertaker and Brock that are dead and only a few people in wrestling could have saved that crowd and gotten them back into it, and he did. And I think that shows how like elite he is, where he could take crowds that wanted to hate him and kind of force them to like him. Yeah, I um, I um, I yeah that 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 match you're talking about, I remember exactly what you're talking about. That wasn't the one at ECW Arena, but that was another one in that same time period. And yeah, it was really impressive. I wouldn't quite say that the WrestleMania 30 crowd was a crowd that wanted to hate him, but I get. I get what you're saying. Yeah, in that case, it was more just a crowd that I think 99% of other wrestlers in the world would have just wrestled the main event to complete silence, and he got them into it probably, I would say, five or ten minutes in again. Yeah, yeah, I would say, um, yeah, he was the only guy that could, you know, and part of that was circumstances, but yeah, his character work, and also just a general natural charisma that he has. He's... You know, I know that a lot. Some people will scoff at this. You know, maybe not anymore. But at one time they would have. But I think he's one of the most charismatic wrestlers of the modern era by far. Um, just you know, I guess just because of the likability factor, he just has an intangible. He just has something. And I uh, think I think he's one of the most likable. I think there's, the, in some ways, it's hurt him because there's there's been a lot of Brian Danielson promos over the years where you could tell he was about to start smiling, but there. That's also his strength because there's a natural likability and just wholesome, almost weird wholesomeness to him that just comes through. That can't help but come through with him. Yeah, he's just uh, he's just a good dude and uh, and a great wrestler, and that's a good combination because you don't you didn't have too many of those in history prior to that era, right? Yeah. You, know, you found you, you know your heroes disappointed you, and at least as of now, uh, Brian Danielson has not disappointed us. I don't think. Yeah. And uh, I would say, uh, like, thinking about this list did not disappoint me. ROH had so many great wrestlers. Uh, uh, watching it through the years has been, you know, just a pleasure. Uh, it's, you know, I don't think it's maybe necessarily at its peak right now, although I still think it's pretty good, you know. Um, I think it's a, a good, solid wrestling promotion. It, you know, it has its ups and downs, but, you know, it, it'll never recapture the magic that it used to have. But mm-hmm. it's, you know... I, I would say, you know, it's still good. It's still worth watching. I, I went to Final Battle, um, first one of the first uh, ROH shows I'd been to in a while, and I thought it was excellent. You know, really good from top to bottom, and I found the crowd to be the, among the hottest ROH crowds I've seen since during that glory period. So, you know, they're, they're doing something right these days, so hopefully some of these guys can, uh, can make it. Uh, do, uh, do you have any honorable mentions you want to say before we wrap up? Uh, I just have a few guys quick on... Uh, um I would say, uh, no, for, oh, Jack Jack Evans is the guy who I is probably if you ask me which wrestler in Ring of Honor did you love the most that you couldn't justify putting on a top ten, it would be Jack Evans because I think he's one of the most compulsively watchable wrestlers in history where you just want to see what he's going to do from the second he steps through the curtains to the second he comes back. Um, Chris Hero is a guy who I think might be one of the best wrestlers in the world the last couple years. I think he had a very good Ring of Honor run. I don't think they ever completely got behind him, and I think he kind of took things to another level, kind of outside of Ring of Honor, post-Ring of Honor. Uh, 
Paul London had a really nice run early on, but obviously didn't have the longevity. Jimmy Jacobs is the guy who I think did some some stuff missed, but some good character work and uh, some good promos. And, you know, I think underrated the number of good matches he had, even though maybe like CM Punk, he's not a, a natural athlete. Uh, Jimmy Rave, I loved the toilet paper throwing stuff. I thought he had a couple great feuds, you know, the AJ Styles feud, the Punk feud, the the Embassy feud versus uh, Generation Next was really fun. Uh, Colt Cabana was kind of a mainstay and gave them something a little different with, you know, Kami that could still be incorporated into good wrestling matches. And obviously I said before, Kevin Steen and AJ Styles just missed my list. So yeah, well, the one guy that, you know, I, I agree with everyone you said, um, one guy you didn't mention that I would like to mention is El Generico. Um, he's, uh, he might be in my second 10, um, Certainly one of my favorite wrestlers. You know, another guy who might be, maybe his best work was not in ROH, but had a lot of great matches in ROH. I, I still think that match he and Steen had uh, at Final Battle 2010 is among my favorite ROH matches of all time, um, plus a million other great matches they had together in many different places. Um, and their tag team was was fantastic. I just really love him. Um, and... Uh, like you said, Chris Hero, another guy. I think his best stuff was outside of ROH. Young Bucks are another, you know, couple guys. You know, they're they've had a lot of great moments in ROH. I think that, you know, their mem- their most memorable stuff will always be outside of ROH. Yeah. Um, but you know, you know, and then someone like an Adam Cole, who, um, you know, I think maybe he's uh, never quite lived up to what in the ring what you would hope for an ROH champion. Yeah. His his character work has been very impressive, I think, in the past little while. I think he's become a really good promo, and I think he carries himself like a star. Um, and I think a lot of that stuff he was able to accomplish, you know, in ROH. So I, I could see him being someone who someone might consider for that list. And another guy, just in terms of longevity, improvement overall, is uh, Jay Lethal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was like the worst promo ever. <laughs> when in like in like the mid two thousands, I mean he was so bad. Then he went to TNA, you know, figured it out, came back, really carried himself well as a champion, I think, and I consider him a genuinely good uh, champion at this point. Yeah, like he became a guy where it went from his character work being the worst part of him to maybe like that might be even better than his ring work now. Like yeah, that m- might be like the selling point of Jay Lethal. Yeah, and he's, he's an overall good performer. So you see, you've seen a lot of guys grow over the years because they started so young. You know, a lot of times nowadays when guys get to WWE, they've already kind of been through the ringer, so you don't really get to see them grow from, like, you know, young bucks into, uh, no you know, no pun intended with the tag team, into, uh, you know, fully realized adult wrestling stars. But in ROH, you had a lot of examples of that. You know, mm-hmm. from from the Briscoes to, um, to Lethal, to even to Brian Danielson, I would say, fits that mold as well. So um, it's amazing how many wrestlers they had that were really good when they were really young and started in Ring of Honor, but then still managed to grow. Like yeah. to to get wrestlers where it's not you know where it never felt like like a charity case to watch them. Like oh, you have to watch these guys. You know they're not they're green right now, but they'll be really good in a year. Or so you know we got to give them some matches, guys. Like it never felt that way. Yet they kept improving. Yeah, Danielson and Low Key were what twenty when the first Ring of Honor show happened, 2021, and they were already amazing. Like, I mean, they, they, if they had never gotten any better, they would be really great wrestlers. 
Um, but they both got better. Danielson got, you know, significantly better, I would say. So, they, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's just sort of how it goes. It's just, that's one of the good things about the indies. You see guys in their physical prime, not just in their, um, you know, not just in their prime in terms of experience and stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'd say, uh, if we want to just quickly recap our lists, um, I'll do mine first. Um, okay. My number 10 was Loki. My number 9 was AJ Styles. Number 8 was CM Punk. Number 7 was Kevin Steen. Number 6 was Homicide. Number 5 was Roderick Strong. Number 4 was Austin Aries. Number 3 was Jay Briscoe. Number 2 was Samoa Joe. And number 1 was uh, American Dragon, Brian Danielson. And my list is number 10 is Roderick Strong. Number 9 is Christopher Daniels. Number 8 is Homicide. Number 7 is Austin Aries. Number 6 is Low Key. Number 5 is Nigel McGuinness. Number 4 is CM Punk. Number three is the Briscoes, because I cheated. Number two is Brian Danielson. And number one is Samoa Joe. All right, excellent. And um, very curious to see what ends up being the final list, which I guess you could see at um, uh, un, uh, unsolicited plugs for VoicesOfWrestling.com and PlacetoBeNation.com. Um, <laughs> I don't know when it's coming out, because I don't run the list. I just kind of piggybacked off of them. Um, they stole their, tried to, uh, you know, kind of uh, jump on the bandwagon a little bit. So, but it will be coming out, and I'm very curious to see what ends up being the final top 50. A lot of guys on there that uh, you know we haven't talked about. Um, but I think this was a really fun uh, trip down memory lane for ROH for me. So I really appreciate you joining me, Hobbs. I really appreciate you having me on the show anytime. Excellent, thanks, and thank you uh, as always for listening. Thank you to the Cubs fan for hosting the show. Um, and uh, until next time, uh, read a damn book if you want to learn something. Bye. <laughs>